You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 3rd, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. And it was on this very day in 1976 that the Viking 2 landed on Mars. Wow. Exciting stuff. That is exciting. Our exploration of Mars has been kind of a roller coaster. Hit and miss. Hit and miss, yeah. Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. But that was one of the successes. Viking 2 lasted a long time. It was uh, 1,281 Mars days. Mm hmm. And uh, the batteries failed in April of 1980. So they got several good years of data. And now we got the Phoenix up there. And um, at the end of the summer, so coming up soon, we should get our follow-up report. Hopefully we'll get a follow-up on the Phoenix soon. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, Evan, and I are now back from Dragon Con. We spent our weekend in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, looking at people in really cool costumes. I'm jealous. The costumes were awesome. Let me just quickly describe the range of costumes. One end of the spectrum was a a girl uh, wearing street clothes, apparently, with a stuffed animal attached to her head. That was the bad end of the spectrum. What was she supposed to be? I think worse. I than have that. no idea what she was. Worse. You found something worse than that. What was the worst? Than- I mean, Evan, tell me if you agree with this because we were, we saw a kid with like a, a lameo Darth Vader helmet and a black T-shirt. You know, oh, it was bad. I mean, yeah. it was like this five foot one Darth Vader. I mean, he had the helmet right, Aww. but he, he wore black sweatpants and a, and wrapped a bed sheet around him and called it a cape. <laughs> it was really right, but it, it's accentuated by the other end of the spectrum, right? Because there were people who were Darth Vader. I mean, it was as good as the Darth Vader from the movie, oh, the yeah. full on costume. You know, see now, I think that that's sadder. I think the kid in the bedsheet is charming, <laughs> and the guy who spent $20,000 on a Darth Vader costume is kind of sad. That, that Vader costume was nice. The high-end ones were nice, but it was not a representative of the far end of the spectrum. I, I think I was the only one, actually, that saw five, four or five guys in movie-quality Iron Man costumes that were just mind-bogglingly well done. I asked... Um, one of the there was a girl that was with with them, um, and she said that they they make these costumes professionally. That's like their job. They sell them all over the world for like thousands of dollars. So this wasn't just a hobbyist, um, but they were unbelievably high end. They you, if you saw them in the movie, you, you, you mean you would fit right in. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful costumes. Yeah, but but you said that the uh, one of the guys had to be led around because he was essentially blind inside that costume. He couldn't <laughs> see out of it. He had, yeah, he had LEDs in his eyes, so his eyes lit up, and they did look nice, but apparently it blinded him, so, <laughs> so <yeah>. downside. <laughs> it's a slight design flaw. I guess he doesn't have the heads-up display working yeah. in that thing yet. Yeah, right. Such are the sacrifices, right? Were there any Randy costumes? Or? Just this one short guy who looked re- it was a dead ringer for Randy, really? seriously. It was a, no, he, he was actually Skinny Santa from um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> skinny uh, Santa. Remember that? Well, actually, Randy was there as well as Michael Shermer and Phil Plate and Pamela Gay and uh, Derek and Swoopy from Skepticality who were basically running the podcasting and skeptic tracks at Dragon Con. did a great job, Richard Saunders was there, a lot of people. And a lot of skeptics, um, a lot of our listeners came up to uh, talk with us and introduce themselves, and so thanks to everyone who took the time. It was a little madcap, it was a little crazy, you know. It was our first time there, we didn't really know what to expect. 
so we didn't really plan any formal events with us. We basically spent the whole time either doing events or planning the next event. You know, I was or up, checking out the dealers, or yeah, Bob, you know, yeah, t- right, t- or chasing Bob down from the dealer room. Right, it's great Bob, stuff. We got to go I, to the lecture. Come on! I was literally up at two in the morning on Saturday creating a video to show during our live recording on Sunday. Steve, one of my favorite things about the convention was certainly the debate on the panel you were on: true yeah. believers versus skeptics. Debates are always fun. I love debates. For me, that was one of the highlights because it was the perfect time to take these true believers by the collars and just shake some sense. And who were the the true believers? The big guy was Graham Watkins, who was there last year, who was a a paranormal researcher. So the important thing is you kicked their butts. We did kick their butts. Good. It it was, uh, you know, they had nothing. They really brought nothing. And then on the skeptic side was me, as Evan said, and Michael Shermer um, and Ben Radford and Allison Smith from the JREF. And it was a good combination. We sort of brought a good uh, combination, I think, of experience and skills to the skeptic side. So, you know, it was... It was I, thought, I thought it was pretty easy to counter... To ben counter had the probably sense. the best one-liner of the... Uh, he did. He did. He had the best... He certainly had the best one-liner. So there, there was a, a Catholic priest on the believer side who was actually quite reasonable. Yes. Probably the most reasonable of the bunch, but, you know, reserves that sliver of the possibility... Of divinity, right? That's it's like trying to make the most intellectual argument you can for that. But at one point, he said that uh, just you know he's trying to be very congenial. Said that their textbooks are cheaper than ours. You know, their textbooks referring to the Bible. And then Ben Ben Radford, without missing a beat, said that's because we update ours. <laughs> that was great. That was great. That was a great line. Was, oh, it was perfect. It was perfect. It was a lot of fun. So yeah, that was the whole the whole weekend was a lot of fun. I mean, it was it was packed with science, podcasting, and skeptical lectures and panel discussions. Really, really good contact content. It went from ten in the morning till midnight. I mean, it was really the whole day. It just didn't stop. Definitely going to have a I think a larger presence there next year. You know, this was sort of our, our first year. We were just checking it out. Again, it was it was fantastic. So next year, we're definitely going to go back. You know, probably have a larger presence. You know, be involved with more things going on. You know, hopefully, all five of us can go next year. The only downside is that it's pretty close on the heels of TAM. You know, it's going to be TAM in mid July, and then Dragon Con at the end of August, beginning of September. Yeah, once we start making money off of the skepticism gig, we'll have all the vacation days we need to go. But yeah, yeah, that's true. yeah, that's right. It that's does right. it does eat up a lot of our resources. That's just honestly true. So, um, (laughs) send money (laughs) so we can continue to go. And well, yeah, the the more resources we have, the more we'll do. That's that's the bottom line. But anyway, but we have the resources to go this year. So we we did, and it was great. I'm glad you had fun. We did, even though it was without me. We we wish you were there. You should have dressed up in a Rebecca costume. We we, well, we carried a picture of you. Maybe kind of reminded ourselves that you know that you were there in spirit. It should have been a life-size cutout. Oh, that would have been good. That talks when people walk past it. What would it say? Dirty things. <laughs> we were we were joking, you know, the whole Filth. it seems that most of the the convention goers were in costume, but the skeptics were not. So we we have to yeah. come up with some kind of theme for the skeptical costumes. So I Maybe I, our I was thinking Maybe we, our listeners should make some suggestions as to what we should dress as. I think we can go as famous scientists and skeptics. Yeah, that's a good idea. No. About that. That no. Idea. Boring. Pirate. Chupacabras. <laughs> Pirates? Pirate rogues, yes. 
pirate. That doesn't even make sense. She would, sure. Bob just wants with to be a pirate. You can be a pirate for Halloween. Dragon Con oh, should be about chupacabras. <laughs> well, it goes aliens man. and Bigfoot and those kind of things, too, is the other yeah. alternative. Now, those would be good costumes. I think that would be awesome and scary. The other interesting thing is that where we had shared a booth or a table set up right across the way, not 20 feet from us, was a table called Fans for Christ. There was also <laughs> Dragon Slayer Ministries, right? Right. Uh, Dragon Slayer Ministries? Dragon Slayer yes. Ministries. Is they that a church for nerds? Is that nerd church? <laughs> no, it's. I think, honestly, honestly, it's just outreach. It's just proselytizing. It's, it's like, oh, let's church. fit in with with the weirdos at the Dragon Con and try to convert them to our religion. But the skeptics had a much larger presence than the believers at this event. Definitely. Which is interesting, considering it's a fantasy convention. So anyway, so we recorded a show on Sunday morning, and we are going to play that for you now. And then uh, we did not do a science or fiction during the live show because we wanted to reserve most of the time for questions from the audience. Uh, So after... The DragonCon live show, which we're going to play for you in a moment, we're going to then come back and do our science or fiction. So let's go to that now. Hello and welcome to the We are live from DragonCon 2008. Joining me as always is Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. At the end is Evan Bernstein. Hello, everyone. And we have three special guest panelists with us here today. Uh, Pamela Gay from Astronomy Cast. Derek from Skepticality. And the infamous James Randi. So, this has been quite a ride the last couple of days. This is my first Dragon Con. Uh, at first, you might think that the intersection between skepticism and science fiction fantasy role-playing is a little awkward, but actually, it's quite natural. Bob, Evan, and I are actually quite avid science fiction fantasy fans. In fact, it's been really hard. The biggest challenge the last couple of days has been keeping Bob away from all of the science fiction and pirate costuming and all that stuff. It was hard for me, too. That's the reason why I became the director, so I have to be here. <laughs> but we did see some interesting things uh, in the last couple of days. We had the opportunity to be touched by the noodly appendage. <laughs> and the apostafarians here in the audience. And we ran into uh, our counterparts from Ghostbusters. <laughs> And we encountered some alien life. That's Evan sitting with uh, the Klingon. <laughs> Evan's the one on the left. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. 
All right, so here we are trapped at DragonCon with limited access to the outside world, and I find in these, you know, I, my addiction to the internet really becomes comes home to me at these kind of events. I go two or three days without constantly consuming the news. So we figured you were all in the same boat, and we thought we would you know, bring to you some of the headlines from around the world for the last couple of days that you may have missed. So here are some headlines I grabbed. Graham Watkins trounced by skeptics in live debate. You, you, should, you should have seen that. It was really fun. We have a quote. He was totally lame, says noted skeptic. I'm not sure who that source was. But luckily, Randy was there to basically pin him to the wall and say, bottom line, take the challenge or not. And he declined. Actually, though, didn't he agree at the beginning? No, he never. He speaks with four big tongue. Let's put it that way. It was really odd. He's in language. Here's a good one. Bigfoot sighted in Atlanta insisting to Wookiee. Surprising that the fake one was uh, the one they bought, and the whole the fake yeah. was just south of here. So. Right, right. I, th- I thought I saw one of those costumes walking around. Actually. Yeah, I think he did on purpose. Yeah, they had to do something. The guy inside, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good advertising for whoever makes that Bigfoot costume. Oh yeah. Hard <laughs> <laughs> Swoopy's secret identity revealed. She's not here. Where is she? Derek let that cat out of the bag yesterday. Invading troops march through streets of Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I have a picture to go with this one. <laughs> actually, what's funny is Adam from the Mistbusters actually has one of their outfits. And is that right? He said Only one. <laughs> he said. Because they gave him one. Because he says he wants to come to DragonCon. He said, you never know. I could be one because you would never know. You would never know. Yeah. He would be in the most tricked out costume. At the you never know. He might actually just want to be hanging around. He would come jetpacking in. <laughs> actually, we're really slim pickings on science news for the past few days. It hasn't been a full week you know, since our last show. And sometimes you go a couple of days of a dry spell. It's hard to know what to talk about. So... Caltech scientists discover why flies are so hard to swat. <laughs> Finally! It turns out they have really fast reflexes. That's it. Or you have to learn from Pat Morita. Is that only grasshoppers? No, i So they, their visual system is able to respond to incoming threats in 100 milliseconds. But that's about how fast neurons fire. So that's... Pretty direct connection. They know which way, which direction to jump in. One interesting aside with that is um, when a fly is flying, say, in a kitchen with fluorescent lighting, the, the cycle of the fluorescent lights, from the fly's perspective, it's light, dark, light, dark. That's how fast they can sense the, uh, the, the light coming from the uh, fluorescent lights. So that was just uh, interesting. And <laughs> <laughs> National guidelines released for earwax removal. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Evidence-based earwax removal. I'm not kidding. Does this mean I should sell my stock in Q-tips? <laughs> well, you shouldn't use Q-tips to remove cerumen that's impacted in your internal auditory matus. I always had someone blowing one ear. <laughs> So it's like it's like a some government study that uh, it's uh, the uh, national guidelines by the otolaryngology okay. professional organization. Wasn't my like tax money? 
Maybe. Sure. Possibly was some tax credit. But this is one of those headlines that sounds kind of weird when you first look at it. It's like an Ig Nobel type of thing. But it's actually serious. you got to know when to take the wax out of your ears and when not to take it out of your ears. Because it serves a purpose in there. Why did I do that? You can clear up the wax? <laughs> All right, and I have no idea what this is, because Pamela just gave it to me, and she's going to tell us what it is. I, I like just randomly providing pretty pictures to people and then making them ask why. Um, so this, this one is really cool. This is brand new as of Friday. We now know that, yes, there is definitive evidence that the stuff in the center of the Milky Way galaxy that acts in a black hole-like kind of way to act is confined into a space that can't be explained any other way. And it has a disk of material around it that is giving off x-rays and radio waves and stuff like this. So you have just 25,000 light years away from you, a super massive black hole that is, it's four million times the mass of the sun, and we used a telescope 2,800 miles across to study it. Now, that's a bit big, that's kind of like most of the continental United States, you're thinking, where did we build this telescope? Well, the cool thing about telescopes is you can put one over here and one over here, wire them together, and they act like a telescope that is as wide as the distance between my two thumbs. So we used the planet in a series of different telescopes strewn out across the planet to look toward the center of our Milky Way galaxy. And they had a resolution fine enough to discern details as small as the event horizon of a 400 million solar mass black hole to make sure that really there's only one giant thing in there. This has been a concern of astronomers for a while. What if there are two things? What if there are four things? What if there are hundred giant things waiting to eat stars and planets sitting in the middle of our Milky Way galaxy? And using all of these telescopes, we have one more piece of evidence to say there is a giant freaking black hole in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. It's one object, and we can see it give off radio light. And that's just cool. That talk that Phil Plate gave about black holes last night. Kind of cool and scary at the same time. So this particular picture is an x-ray picture of the center of the uh, Milky Way galaxy. All the light and gas and blobs you see there, that is sort of the burping of that black hole when it consumes things. It gives off bursts of high energy light when every once in a while something happens to get a little bit too close, get gravitationally sucked in and eaten. And as it gets sucked in, some of it manages to escape, some of it manages to stream off, and that lights up the inner part of our Milky Way galaxy with x-rays. There's also radio waves coming off the disk of material that's contemplating suicide right now. And it's that suicidal disk of material that these astronomers were studying. Name for a good band. (laughs) Suicidal disk. (laughs) Pamela, why are there no jets coming out of our black hole? So there, there are out among the galaxies these systems that have giant jets of material coming off of them, such that if I need a blob, I'm making this a blob. Okay. If you can imagine this is a round galaxy, 
and I took this round galaxy and put it dead center along the long axis, I have to use the word axis, I'm a scientist, along the long axis of this room. The jets, in some cases, of material coming out of this galaxy would fill the length of this room. Now, when this is happening, the reason it's able to happen is because it's a galaxy that has a lot of gas and dust in it. And the gas and dust, for various reasons, is falling in towards the center of the system. You knock something, things move. Most galaxies are hanging out kind of stable, keeping their dust to themselves. But if you whack them with another galaxy, that dust just might decide it's going to leave where it is and fall towards the center, fall towards the black hole. And as it gets closer and closer, this strange mathematically evil thing called angular momentum that causes all freshman physics students to cry <laughs> causes the gas and dust coming in to spiral in. Now this stuff gets hot. It gets packed in. It's, it's sort of like you know how miserable you feel when you're over in the uh, Hyatt trying to get up and down the stupid escalators to where all the filk people are and you just get irritated by the heating and the... Now that is a completely empty room compared to how dense and packed in everything is in this disk of material falling into the black hole. Now when you heat up stuff, the electrons leave atoms. And when you have wild electrons and atoms that have been partially stripped, you have charged particles. And when charged particles move, they generate magnetic fields. And when lots and lots and lots and lots of charged particles move really fast as they're suicidally falling into a supermassive black hole, they generate giant magnetic fields. And some of the stuff that is contemplating suicide changes its mind or is forcibly saved by the magnetic field were unclear. And it gets shot out, the magnetic fields of the accretion disk. It gets shot out at speeds that are approaching, in some cases, 80%, 90% of the speed of light. This is fast-moving stuff. And it's all magnetic fields. And what's really cool is you can simulate this by taking a battery and a wire and running current in a circle around a normal Radio Shack wire. And then if you drop a paper clip into it, the circular wire will accelerate the paper clip in the exact same way the magnetic field of the galaxy accelerates particles. It just won't do it at 80 or 90% of the speed of light. <laughs> That's, that's really cool, but you know, flies can jump really fast. <laughs> I'm just saying. All right, well, here comes the, the main portion of our show today. Since we have a live audience, we have to take live Q&A. So we're going to turn off the lights, and now's your opportunity to ask those burning questions that you seem to have for us. <laughs> On one of your uh, earlier podcasts, you talk about... Uh, reality checking in in dreams where uh, if you reach a, a certain state, I guess, you can actually control your own dreams. Could you go into a little more depth on that? I, I've never seen to be able to do it. Yeah, what you're talking about is lucid dreaming. Right, right. And it's a very unstable neurological state between being awake and, and dreaming. The, the, our best guess at this point in time is that you know, the, the part of your brain that's primarily involved with deciding if something is real or not, that it makes sense to you, it, it compares without conflict to your model of reality, that that part's not working very much when you're dreaming. And that's probably a necessary thing, because if it were, you would constantly be assaulted by the unreality of your dreams. 
So, and that would be unstable. So we just evolved to have that piece be turned off when you're conscious. So being, a, dreaming is actually an altered state of consciousness. It's, you are still you, but, but it's a different you. It's the dreaming you. It's a different subset of your brain that's working to different, in different proportion. And it's actually an altered state of consciousness. And in that altered state of consciousness, that alternate you has greatly impaired or reduced reality checking. That's why dreams seem so bizarre, and then they, but they make perfect sense to you when you're dreaming, right? Everyone had this experience. And you wake up, and you remember your dreams, like, wow, that makes absolutely no sense. Why did I just accept that without questioning it? Because your dreaming self accepted it, and now your waking self is a different consciousness, rejects it because it's, it's not real. Lucid dreaming is when that part of your reality checking kicks in a little bit when you're dreaming. Enough so that you say, wow, this doesn't, this isn't real. This doesn't seem real to me. I must be dreaming. You're, you become aware that you're dreaming. But that's very unstable. You tend to either dream you wake up, in which case you buy the dream again, right? Or you really wake up. But you can't stay for too long in that state. But with practice and with effort, so you can maybe maintain it for a little while and do cool stuff while, while you're in that state because you're literally dreaming and in control of it. And I've, I've done this a bunch of times and it's an incredible experience. You have to be careful though because unfortunately when you get some level of some measure of control, uh, you want to do something cool. I have <laughs> just let your imagination run wild. Unfortunately, the more excited you get, the quicker it drops off and you, and you totally lose yourself into the dream again. But you mentioned reality checking. There are a couple ways to actually determine because sometimes you're in the dream, you're kind of like pseudo with it, you're not really fully awake, but you are more aware than you normally are. You can actually determine, you can actually do a test to say, all right, am I dreaming or not? And two tests that really work are one is to, uh, to find a book, find some words, and read, read whatever it says. Look away, look back again, and invariably, if you are dreaming, it will change. So if that happens, you can pretty much guarantee that you are dreaming if the words change. <laughs> Another way is to, which is a little harder, is to break the laws of physics. Jump up in the air and try to extend your drop. If you could do that, chances are you're dreaming. It works. You shouldn't check that one while other people are around. <laughs> is that the same part of your brain that like turns off when you're doing things like drugs? Yeah, well, so, so you would use pharmacology to alter your state of consciousness as well, and that sort of activates and inhibits certain parts of your brain, depending on the chemicals that you're, that you're using. So, yeah, but, this, but dreaming is just a natural altered consciousness that we all experience. Probably also some mental illnesses also, I would think, with your reality checking is just not up to par, right? Yeah, basically, like uh, schizophrenia, well, the, the, the lamest conception is that it's multiple personality. That's kind of how that word colloquially is used now. You're schizophrenic, you have like two minds. But that's actually not true at all. It's a complete myth that just somehow leaked into the popular consciousness. Schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder, which is by definition impairment of your reality checking part of your brain. So every wacky idea that you have that you would normally just filter through this reality checking mechanism doesn't get filtered. So it's real to you. Like the, any even mild paranoia about the government, you know, listening in on your thoughts through the fillings in your teeth, which is a very common delusion for whatever reason, that you, you, know, you laugh at it because it seems silly to you, but if you have a repaired reality checking, it doesn't seem so silly to you. It actually seems very compelling to you. It explains a lot. It explains all the weird things that you notice in your world, and it becomes a pattern recognition um, kind of phenomenon. Uh, so that is, yeah, so that's it all, it's, but that's their, that's their, state of consciousness. That's not an altered state for them. That's the way their brain is wired up. 
Steve, I've had a very peculiar thing happen a few times in my life that I can remember. Uh, I've been wakened uh, while I'm having uh, a particularly vivid and perhaps enjoyable dream by the telephone, for example. I've answered the phone, hung up the phone, and then put my head back on the pillow and said, now, where was I? Oh, yeah. And gone right back into it uh, with great success. <laughs> that, prob that probably was early in the morning. I don't recall. I'll make notes in the future. <laughs> that's, we do most of our dreaming in the hours before we wake up, and that's that kind of phenomenon where you have sort of an interrupted dream, but you go right back into the dream you were in is very is common during that phase of the sleep cycle. So that, that's actually quite common. It's also the period of time when lots of what we call parasomnias occur, and like sleepwalking and things like that, but the one that skeptics are most interested in is the waking dreams, is where you have that kind of experience, but instead of having a brief phone conversation that you may or may not remember when you fully wake up, you have an experience where you're paralyzed, you feel there's an evil entity in the room with you, uh, it, uh, you may have some difficulty breathing, you feel the old, hag, uh, the, the old hag of the sea, or now aliens, you know, visitations, abductions. Uh, that's just a parasomnia. That's just something, a wacky thing that happens in your brain when it gets stuck between two states, the dreaming and the waking state. So these are all very cool you know, things that happen because it, they, the common thread of all these is they challenge our sense of reality and we realize that it actually is just this illusion our brains make for us and we are complete and utter slaves to that illusion, that brain-created illusion. Luckily, it seems to have a pretty good relationship to actual physical reality, otherwise things like science wouldn't work. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it's always reliable all the time. And that's just a, a, a way of capturing all the different kinds of phenomena like optical illusions and waking dreams that skeptics become experts in as explanatory models for all the wacky crap that people experience and put forward as evidence for the world, the universe not making sense, instead of it's just our brains not making sense of it. Wow. I had an experience like that when I was coming out of my coma. Yeah. And a lot of, when I finally took a, a few months before I could really figure out what's going on, that's when I realized that, put it together, that you know, all that stuff I thought I heard, all that when I was asleep in my coma, I didn't. All the stuff I thought was during that time was the stuff that happened when I was waking up. Yeah. And I figured it all out by just piecing things together. And it was weird because for a long time I thought I heard music when I was sleeping. I didn't. It was all when I was waking up. Now, Derek, so you've had an experience that most people have not had. You've had an altered state of consciousness because parts of your brain were turned off by a stroke. Yeah. And the, including the language part of your brain, yeah. which is absolutely central to our internal monologue in, of reality. We think in words. And yeah. so people who have come out of who've recovered enough, as you have, who've had what we call an aphasia. Uh, yeah, but mine was really bad. Yeah, focal deficit in their language area. And they, but then they recover enough to then report what they experienced, often report really bizarre things, because you were in a state where you didn't have the language we normally have in order to think. So how do people think without words? And can, you have any, can you offer at this point any insights into what that was like, or is it just too misty to you? The best way I can describe it is any big budget movie where they try to show you when people are like not under, un unconscious and they're waking up, that weird, fuzzy, everything doesn't make sense, but there's something there. Oh, that, that might be a person. And everything was so foggy, but yet you know things were going on. But it was really bizarre. It was, I guess, like the 
closest thing to like an acid trip. I mean, it was just weird. Nothing really made sense, but you could hear words, music. That's the best thing I can remember. I remember my mom singing, but I don't know when. And I heard later my mom was there when I was waking up singing. But I didn't know. I, in my mind at the beginning, I thought when I, was, when I was sleeping. But it wasn't. Everything that happened once I figured it all out, everything, it was all when I was waking up. And I think because of that, a lot of people think that you know things when you're in a coma or when you do things for people they are hearing. I don't think it actually happens. I think it's all reported because when you're waking up, you remember those things when you're waking up and you don't understand what's going on until much later. I honestly didn't realize or come to terms with really what happened to me almost a year later, almost. I mean, it, it, I understood that I had it. I knew I was in a coma, but it didn't make any sense to me for almost a year. And, and then once I did, I could piece things together and I realized, oh, all that stuff was not when I was sleeping. It's when I was waking up. And I was like, ah, okay. Well, welcome back. <laughs> there are some things that I... Things that I experienced uh, during my hospital stay too, but they were real. I remember <laughs> during the last stages of it, uh, the later stages of it, I uh, was wakened at like two o'clock in the morning by a nurse who would uh, jostle me a bit and say, uh, "What is your name, please?" And I'd say, "James Randy." Cleverly, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then she'd say, "Can you move your right foot for me?" And I move my right foot. And you move your left hand for me, and I'd move my left hand, and then there'd be a pause, and I'd hear the door close. They were just trying to find out if they were wasting morphine on me, I think. And, uh, but she never said good night or anything like that, or thank you very much, go away. So when I was at the, at the very last uh, throes of this sort of procedure, when she'd walk into the room, I'd say, it's James Randy, here's my right hand, here's my left leg, good night. <laughs> I don't think she'd be very happy about it. <laughs> Hi. Uh, my name is Alex, and uh, just to kind of finish up that last dream question, I sort of have the same experience as James Randy. When you wake up, you just sort of like the alarm goes off and you hit the snooze button. If there's some, some things that you perhaps like, uh, like I like flying, for example, I can go back through my dream and then have either you know, jazz back or be in a plane or something weird like that. So I, I think that's something. Guys, I'm gonna try to hit the button. <laughs> <laughs> Become Superman for a moment. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think you're gonna die in your dream, but I guess that's one way to test it. Um, <laughs> that, said not to do that. That old man. Um, the question that I had, which is maybe sort of more of a something to comment on, and not to have like a buzzkill this early in the question session, but a couple weeks ago, you guys on your podcast discussed um, how to deal with this sort of pessimism about this rising wave of. You know, beliefs and all that stuff. And now we hear this whole thing, the vice president, you know, endorsing pretty much creationism. Oh, the potential vice president. Potential. Yes. That's true. But, you know, the fact that it's that high up, I guess, and the fact that it's not being confident and looked down as why is this going running for this office, um, I think shows a lot about people. And my question is, is there anything that you have come across in sociology perhaps that would explain why people are like this why are they so likely to believe in these things and is there anything we can use against them <laughs> by, by you know using this knowledge I mean well, that's the $64,000 question for skeptics right why do people believe why are they hope so hard to convince and I don't think there's any one simple answer for that there seems to be 
Uh, this is, I'm getting into a little bit now of evolutionary psychology, which has its own problems in terms of uh, acceptability more broadly inside. Although I think it's perfectly legitimate science. It, it has some. It's been criticized as not being easily testable, right? Which is a good criticism, you know, to level at any any belief system. But any, in any case, there there seems to be advantages to sharing beliefs with a community. And we, the the in the what we call the evolutionary milieu, right? If you're thinking about a small tribe of people living in a, a hunter-gatherer existence, um, probably sharing beliefs and coming to beliefs easily and having very hyperactive pattern recognition uh, probably had more upside than downside. And now, fast forward to a modern technological civilization with institutionalized science it may have shifted the other way, where there's more downsides to believing too easily. And so we're at the pivot point, right? So skeptics are trying to get humanity past what are just evolved hardwiring to sort of a higher state of recognizing that, well, there's now so many beliefs out there, and so many of them are just a waste of time or potentially harmful, and science is such a powerful tool that we have to now sort of rise above our more primitive hardwiring and understand that we need to filter those beliefs. We can't just accept everything that we hear. And that's what skepticism is, is tools for filtering beliefs. If, if I think you need to get people to understand the power of skepticism, if they feel empowered, that is that is a very powerful way of reaching them. Obviously, there are people who are unreachable. You know, we all have encountered that. They, we, we use the term true believer, and it's meant to be derogatory because it is derogatory, but uh, that's, but we often don't use that to the true believer. Right? That's sort of our internal name for them. But what, what that really means is that somebody puts belief above method, puts belief above reason or, or, or rationality or science, and we have flipped it, right? We want to put science and reason above belief. I can't resist doing something here. We've got a few hundred people. You just mentioned the $64,000 question. How many people in this room recognize what he's talking about? My goodness, look at About half people don't. They're starting to use metaphors from another age. That's such a good one. But that, that actually predates me. I've actually never seen the show. It's just, I just absorbed it. Well, I saw an old yeah. one. <laughs> that was a game show, right? For those well, two yeah. people. Greg Groucho uh, Marx was an excellent skeptic. Yes, yes. It's interesting, though, that you, you talk with, with a crowd like this of such a wide age range. We've gone all the way down from uh, teens all the way up to aged folks like myself. Uh, and old, we've got to even below teens. <laughs> with a pacifier. Uh, that's a good time. Uh, but isn't it interesting that we can talk with metaphors like this and not even think of it? Yeah. And you were almost out of that, that age, but I was well in it. $64,000 question. Were you on that show? <laughs> no, I also have a $60 question. <laughs> Is that before you got the fun name? Yes, This actually does tell the facts, I think, what you're talking about. Is there any evidence that the way we store knowledge in our brain is different than the way we store beliefs, and that's why they're so hard to let go of sometimes? Is there a, meta, is it, is there a physiological difference in the way beliefs are stored, I guess? Yes. But, we're, but we're just starting to figure that out. You know, we really just have the tools to, to reverse engineer the brain in terms of see how, how the different pieces work together. And we're also struggling with the, the paradigms of how to think about how the brain works. Is it, is it really modular or is it more parallel? And 
So we're kind of struggling with even some basic concepts of how to think about how the brain works. But the evidence we have so far strongly suggests that beliefs are encoded differently than facts. Different parts of the brain seem to light up when we remember things that happened than when we remember things that didn't happen. When we recall facts than when we recall thematic beliefs or emotional conclusions or beliefs about things. But it's so complicated, and again, we're still, there's still debates about how to even interpret the data. And frankly, a lot of this data comes from fMRI studies, which although a very powerful, a very nice tool, are extremely tricky to use. So it's, um, all, I think only the very um, best researchers are generating data that's worthwhile, and there's a lot of crappy researchers out there who are still learning the, the tools and are producing a lot of dubious research. So you have to sort through all of that as well. But that's obviously an excellent question. It, it, it cuts right to the heart of you know, what skeptics like to think about, is like, what's the difference between belief and knowledge? And we, we do seem to be in the first stages of of thinking neurologically, neuroanatomically about those differences. You know, obviously you can think about them psychologically, which is sort of at the level where we are now, but maybe the psychology has an underlying neurology to it as well. I've got a radio astronomy question. <laughs> Future of radio astronomy. Are there any plans, are you aware of even long-range plans to launch radio telescopes so we can like, move around like a third of the way of the orbit so that we can really get long baseline? So I, I take it you're thinking about putting, oh, radio telescopes in orbit around the sun rather than around the Earth. Yes. Uh, right now, it's not. There, there's not that much money around for astronomy. It's a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the U.S. economy goes into, oh, science. Um, and building space telescopes is extraordinarily expensive. One of the things that is being thought about is, well, how do we perhaps put one on the moon? That's a pretty good place to start. And one of the really cool properties about moon dust is if you hit it with microwave light, like the stuff that you use to nuke your stuff in the morning, um, that type of microwave light that you use to vibrate water molecules and heat your food in your kitchen will melt moon dust. And so you can use a microwave gun to sculpt the lunar surface into a nice hard surface. And this is really useful because moon dust is evil. It gets into everything. It's insidious. It's scratchy. It hurts. There is a very strange study going on on how much dust can you subject an astronaut to before it becomes cruel, where they're actually taking and putting moon dust between a pig skin and different shirts and doing things to see what abrades the surface of the, it's been removed from a pig. The pig is dead and not suffering. The skin alone is suffering in this experiment. Um, <laughs> so uh, moon dust evil. Shooting moon dust with laser beams made from microwaves or just like non-collimated happy microwave lights with enough energy can make a solid surface. That's a way to turn a crater into a telescope dish. And so there are people thinking about ways to use microwave guns, or even this is the coolest design of all. Imagine instead of a street sweeper, you have a street microwave melter that goes along and creates solid surface features on the moon that when you walk along, don't put dust into the non-atmosphere of the moon because the dust will electromagnetically repel itself and suspend itself. It's really nasty stuff. Um, 
But instead, let's make it solid and make radio dishes cheap and easy just using light. And when we're sending those beams up there, let's make sure that we know the flights that are leaving the local airport. <laughs> Always point your microwave ray gun down. <laughs> what happens if it hits a plane? Um, microwave light just vibrates water molecules, so really the plane is fine unless it's a really high concentrated one, in which case you bake people. Um, but that would take more energy than is feasible, so I'm not worried. Pamela, quick follow-up. What kind of resolution would a baseline equivalent to Earth orbit be? What could we see with something like that? I haven't done that calculation. I can't do it in my head on how little sleep I've had. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that said, um, that sort of resolution allows you to do things like start to make out details on the order of baseballs out where Voyager hangs out currently. So go out to where the Voyager space probe is, place a baseball giving off radio light, and with that sort of a baseline, you could resolve that baseball. And that's just cool. That's really cool. Would, would any of you be willing to share your favorite skeptical moment, like where you had an aha moment, or where you just stumped a believer, or got a really good logical fallacy and caught it? Um, there's just so many. <laughs> Cycle through all of my uh, well, past experience. taking the warrants down was a lot of fun. Yeah, okay, that's a good one. Thanks, that, and that's a really good. One. So, um, our first nemesis was an, or nemesis. Nemesis? Nemesis was uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who, uh, curiously, how many people in this room have heard of them before? Yeah, okay, not too many, maybe a third of the hands went up, or a quarter. Um, they are, in New England, they're very famous. They, are, they, are, they really started the ghost hunting group phenomenon. And in Connecticut, there's about three or four million ghost hunting groups that spun off of the Warrens. Where, so the, what would happen is they had classes and you would get involved in their group as like a little cult. And then after about six months, you realize that, hey, I could do what these guys are doing because they're not doing anything. You know, there's really no special knowledge to this. So they would just split off and do their own thing. And I, we've had either, you can't swing a dead cat in Connecticut without hitting somebody who has a story to tell about how Ed and Lorraine Warren screwed them or were cheating and they caught them. So they went off to form their own ghost hunting group so they could do it right. So we, but Ed and Lorraine Warren were, they're the ones who have all the books and were, they, uh, you know, were portrayed in movies and they were the, the famous ghost hunting couple, right? She was a clairvoyant in Scare Quotes and he, and, and he was the scientific investigator and when you, and the demonologist certified, a certified demonologist, don't stick her, had a certificate. Where's that university? Um, I knew I never thought to ask. <laughs> fantasy land. <laughs> fantasy land, that's right. And, and Steve, also, they were brought in to investigate the Amityville, the, Amityville. the famous Amityville case at the time. The Amityville Horror was one of their claim, the claims to fame. So there in Connecticut, we had to take them on after we formed our local skeptical group, and they, that was our big fish. And then we found out, it was amazing how, how worked up we got about we have to go after them, and be so careful and everything. And then we, when we actually had our couple of meetings with them and realized what was going on, like, oh my goodness, they were so lame. <laughs> Completely over-prepared for the whole thing. And it was like... <laughs> With their 
image in the media was monumental, and this is this pathetic poor little old couple who were just self-deluded, and it was really the disconnect between the media image of these, this couple and the reality was really so stark to us. It was our really first slap in the face of how pathetic the whole paranormal thing is, really. But, but anyway, so when we were towards the end of our investigation of them, which we kept very friendly, and he's actually very charismatic, very nice, Ed Warren until he passed away a few years ago. But actually, like a lot of these people, if you have a group and you can do that for 30 years, you probably have some charisma, right? So very, very friendly. You can see how people would enjoy going through that whole thing with them. Our goal was for them to give us their best piece of evidence, right? Because we, we didn't want to hear stories. We wanted to see evidence that we could objectively investigate. And we got from them the videotape of an investigation of a, of a haunted house where they claim that one of these students who was doing the investigation with them um, vanished, that they dematerialized. Right in front of a camera. Right on video. It's there's the evidence. So we said, okay, that sounds really compelling. We'll be we'd, we'd happily take a look at that. We looked at the videotape. Actually, Evan, who uh, works for a company that is in TV equipment, right? So he was able to have the videotape reviewed on an editing deck, so you could actually see information on the the screen that you don't see on your VCR. And I'll say experts take a look at it. And it, we actually proved conclusively that the tape was stopped and then at the moment the, the dematerialization occurred and then was restarted sometime later. Right, so you know, a five-year-old sees somebody vanish on a videotape and they would probably reason out that the tape, the tape was stopped and restarted. But they insisted that that didn't happen, that there was nobody near the camera when it happened. And the, the famous line that we always make fun of towards to each other is Ed, when, you know, when we were talking about this to Ed Warren about you know, raising this possibility, he said to us, I don't care what you say, that kid disappeared. That was his line, that was his ultimate conclusion. So, so it's the time code that was wrong. That's what you're talking about. Well, better than that, there was a there's a border around the video that's not that's exposed, but generally you don't see it on the TV screen. Yeah, on your TV and screen, you don't see all the information on a video yeah, picture. Right. There is more that's outside the edges that never Over makes it onto your actual yeah, screen. Yeah. Exactly. So, right. And when you started, when you looked at that, you act, there was a hand that came within that border. That's right. right so you were shut off. Yeah. So if you're watching on a regular TV, you don't see anything happening. But if you look at it on a monitor that affords you all the information in the video signal that got recorded, you can see that, so there's this person in, on, on the video, standing right in front of it. You can see that somebody moved over to the side of the camera and kind of put their finger on it, right? They hit the pause button. The guy moved out of the frame. He resumed the, he resumed the video. Bingo, he's gone. You can actually test this if you have a good, oh, they don't have it anymore, they have recent ones, but if you have a good rear projection TV, go to the on the internet, you can find the codes to get overscan, turn it off. The screen will get smaller, and you'll see all this extra stuff. On the, usually, it's just like white noise or just black or lines, or but you can actually see extra stuff that's in the frame that's not there. So I want to know, where's the missing persons report in the FBI investigation? <laughs> so this is the report from the kid that that, that dematerialized. Is that um, I don't know, nothing happened. I was. I kind of felt some water drop on my head because he goes like, like points on his head, looks up, and then, and then disappears. But his memory was, I just walked upstairs, so he didn't notice. <laughs> he didn't notice anything. They, it, nothing was noticed during the investigation. This is always the first big red flag of, an, of a photographic or video artifact: is that nothing happened at the time. You only notice it when you're reviewing the tape afterwards or the picture afterwards. 
And there was, nothing happened. Nothing happened. It was just a glitch on the videotape. They stopped and started, and, and that was it. But they built that into a dematerialization and got quite pissy with us when we proved that, in fact, it was just a, stop, a stopping and restarting of the videotape. Can I give you a, a quick story about Amityville? I, I used to do a radio program about in New York City. Yay! Uh, many years ago, and uh, I lived in New York City down in Greenwich Village. And I got a call from WNEW on the anniversary, one of the anniversaries of the Amityville Horror event. Uh, that is a, the ghost and such. And um, they offered to drive me out to Amityville, New York, and uh, they would uh, sort of come up to the curb and study the house and ask my opinion about it and ask passersby their opinions. They drove me out there and we parked and... Uh, some people came by and we asked them, do you know anything about No, I never heard of that kind of thing. They wanted it. We thought, gee, we're, we're getting nowhere with this. Then a cop car comes up and uh, uh, he parks it some distance away from us, didn't want to interfere with the taping. But we had taken a famous psychic, I've forgotten her name now, and she was going to get vibrations. You see, they, they do that very easily. And uh, she hopped out of the car, and as soon as she said, now, I, as soon as I touch the property, I, I'm going to begin to get sensations. I, I know this is what happens with me. And she put her foot on the lawn, and immediately, yeah, and it fell on the ground and started to gurgle and, and froth in the mouth and such, and carried on, was writhing around on the ground. At this point, the cops get out of the car and they come over and say, uh, excuse me, what's going on here? Well, we're at WNEW and we're excited and so on. This is the Amityville Horror and the cops said, oh no, that's two blocks down. <laughs> did you just finally see the, the, the horror house? The, the hood one. Did you <laughs> Did you finally get to see the actual house you went through? Uh, yeah, we drove down the street again, but the the, the, the spirit was out of us. And, uh, it was getting late at night. We had a deadline to meet, so we, we left. It was an anticlimactic effort. Yeah, exactly. I did a couple of card tricks, and they went home. That's precious. All right, I want to relate an interesting story that I had happened to me last night, actually. I was dreaming that I was playing the piano, and I was playing a Chicago song, like one Chicago song. And when I woke up this morning, I'd forgotten about the dream until I was reminded my wife's clicking through the channels, and A&E had Chicago the band on, and they played the same song that I was playing last night in my dream. Now, if I were thrown to woo-woo, I would obviously think that there was some kind of precognition that it happened. Um, being a skeptic, I realize it's just coincidence, but it's a pretty damn strong coincidence. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I've been a, psych, uh, a skeptic for a while now, so I'm not prone to this woo-woo thing. Um, but my question to you is, has anything happened like that in your life where you say, ah, oh, it was just a coincidence, but then you stop and you think, hey, you know, I mean, it, it kind of goes against the whole skeptic thing. That was my one question. The other one, I wanted to uh, address something that he had said. Has there ever been a case where there's been head trauma, where a person who was a believer, um, part of their brain was destroyed, and they no longer could be a believer, or vice versa, a skeptic then, after a, a brain trauma? could no longer look at things skeptically and, and became prone to being a believer. Well, first off, what Chicago song were you playing? <laughs> You're an inspiration, and that's the song they played. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so, man, man, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> Can we expect your application shortly? <laughs> and the weird thing is, after a you know, woman came up while I'm playing, and I said, I really like Chicago, so then she, later in my dream, she brings me a book on the Chicago Bears. 
And I didn't want to. I, and I didn't want to make her feel bad that you know, I met Chicago with the band. So that was kind of interesting. In my dream, I didn't want to embarrass somebody like that. Very, and I wouldn't remember it unless I had seen Chicago. Because then I said, "Oh my God, my wife! You want? I, I actually dreamed I was playing that song." And she was. It sounds like, like a bad pork chop or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was called the Nixon. That's what it was. So. The, Certainly, saying that as a coincidence is enough of an explanation. So, how many dreams did you not remember? Because there wasn't that trigger. Because there wasn't that trigger, and then how many events happen in your day? And if that doesn't happen to you every now and then, that would be the hard thing to explain. Not that it does but happen every now and then. That's right. But there's actually an alternate explanation as well, because you actually can't say that your memory of your dream is accurate. You may have had a, a dream that was kind of in the ballpark, and then the trigger not only triggered the memory of the dream, but it also focused the memory on the details of the memory to fit the trigger. Right? It's the only song I know. Yeah. It's either that or in the park, and it wasn't Saturday in the park. But, it, but so that, as I said, this is an alternate explanation. Co- coincidence is enough of an explanation, but a lot of times people say they get the trigger and then the details of the dream really match what happened, but that's just because now your memory's just morphing to fit the trigger. And, now, and that makes it very powerful, though. Isn't there some parts of that that bleed over to like being awake, too? Because this same thing happens a lot when you're looking for something new, like for your house, big item, ticket items. Let's say you're looking for like a new refrigerator. And suddenly, everybody has refrigerators for sale. And they're all, wait a minute, I just saw that one. They're everywhere now. And you get that yeah. idea in your head that, oh, suddenly now everybody needs a refrigerator. Like a new car when you get it. Yeah. Same thing. Like Camry, there's cameras everywhere. Is yeah. it the same? Well, you learn a word for the first time, then you hear that same word yeah. three times that day. But I've never heard that word before in my life. Yes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> Answer a question about have we ever had a, an amazing coincidence? Actually, just yesterday, we were standing by the skeptics table talking with Richard Saunders, and we were talking about forks and bending forks. And right as we're talking about forks, literally a giant fork walked by. <laughs> susceptible to coincidence. How could you possibly explain the giant fork just as we're talking? Did you, did you bend him? Just one time. It was a her fork, yeah, right. Telling this spaghetti monster. I was just kind of curious. Uh, I mean, I know you've done a couple interviews with uh, people who are you know, believers in the Google. And I was curious if you were planning on trying to do some more like that at all, or if it's possible for you to get Yeah, yeah. So I actually have emails out to several individuals. Um, I'd love to, every you know, every now and then to interview somebody who was on the believer side of the camp. I've actually sent an email to Uri Geller, because his email's on his website. Who? Uri Geller? Steve, can you read the question for the audience? Not everyone. Uh, so the question is, are we go- planning on interviewing any of the true believers again in the future, because we have done it in the past? And he answers yes, but I just haven't nailed one down yet. The other guy I want to interview. So, hey, Randy, if you could hook us up with Uri Geller, I'd love to interview you. Oh, yes. You're on your speed dial, right? So, I, I want to ask him the, the question: Are you a, did this all a magician's trick? Just to get him one more time to give a, a pseudo answer, which be vague. But um, I have emails out to Richard Hoagland. I'd love to interview oh, Richard. Oh wow! Because. Yeah, the face on Mars guy. Let me know when you do. Yeah. (laughs) 
So we're, it's just, but no one has sealed the deal yet with us, so I don't know. It's just, it's just hard to get through to people because you know, any, if you recognize his name, they're probably being assaulted with you know, requests for interviews and stuff. Um, and they have no reason at all to answer my email or to come on our show. So you just think of lucky with stuff like that. You know, like Neil Adams, he contacted us. Yeah. You know, so that's why that's how that happened. Yeah, I was about to say, uh, same thing for our show. Yeah. We tried to get a couple of the big name people. They never even respond. Even if we said, I've written letters with my hand, get some attention. Did, did you mention money? No, I don't want to do that. But then I get, I think the, you probably get the same one. I think Phil got it too. That crazy guy who wants to tell us that like he has all the proof we need to prove he has the proof that they fly. The UFA. That's Billy Myers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Michael oh, Horn yeah. guy. Yeah. Did you guys get it too? Michael oh, yeah. Horn. We, we've already we've already trashed Michael Horn on our show. A couple yeah. Of times. <laughs> he guys he demanded to come on our show. Beethoven. And so and our response was, you know, if you had asked nicely, I actually probably would have had him on, but nobody demands to be on our show, so screw you. So we just made fun of him for a couple of episodes. He, but I had a long email exchange with him like the previous year, and and anyway we. we We've gone over this on our show before. That he's the guy with the uh, who was defending the pictures of the two dancing girls who turned out, you know, Billy Meyer said were aliens, and then had this elaborate, ridiculous story about how, oh, it really was the dancing girls, but the men in black switched the photos, and, and, you know, that that's that guy. And yeah. so we've already tried. He was making another big push because I he sent a big email, email, and I looked at the who else. It was like me, Phil. I think of you guys too. It's like a whole group of people. It was like. I demand to be in your show so I can prove you guys wrong. Well, I'm not going to do that. If I believed you, do you think I would do it? And then, would I have somebody like you on my show with that? But then, then his shtick is, then he sends out a press release saying, skeptics yeah. admit I'm right. Yeah, yeah. Because, exactly. because you didn't have me on your show. Yeah. I have two things. Uh, first of all, you were talking about the uh, structures of belief and offender uh, memory. Have you read the new research on the five axes of morality that's going to show up across all? You may nod there and a no there. Yeah, a little bit. I'm not enough to that without prep to talk about it, you know, definitively. So, okay. but but there are. I mean, this is the, the from the notion that there are some universals in, in human culture. So. There are, I, I can't remember what the number is now, it's up to 50 or something, maybe more, maybe I'm misremembering. Things that are true of people in every single culture that we know about, right? And, if, and we call those the, those are universals, because they're universal to every culture. And there are certain morality things that are universal. There are a wide variety of yeah. groups over the years. That was just one of the things. Right. The other, I've gotten this from a friend in Florida, I've gotten this from a friend in Pennsylvania, who know each other. And it's this uh, new, I guess it's new theory that at some point in the relatively recent past, around 2,000 years ago, the corpus callosum in the human brain was more connected than it is now, that a lot of the uh, beliefs in, in spirits, fairies, gods, often be essential because those two parts of the brain were communicating more. I'm curious, but then hearing this from two totally separate groups of friends, it sounds completely absurd. I'm just curious if anyone else has heard of this. I have not heard of that. The bicameral landing. I've heard that term before. I didn't realize that that was like, that was so that is you know it sounds like total bunk to me. It just that's my, that's my gut reaction. You know, the, 
I, I don't know if that uh, if actually they, they they took the brains out they took the brains out of the mummies at least the Egyptians did you know or that, that's the right brain left brain thing of extra blind it's a totally overblown concept you know the corpus callosum is actually quite robust and there were other connections between the right and left that's only the main cables is also the anterior posterior commissary the recording dropped out briefly at this point right in the middle of this explanation so I'm going to uh, simply reiterate what uh, was said in the missing piece. So I was discussing the fact that the right and left brain have fairly robust connections, not only the corpus callosum, but the anterior and posterior commissures. They are communicating with each other in real time. And there is no evidence that in the past this connection was more robust or that uh, a lack of connection between the two halves of the brain is responsible for, for any psychological phenomenon. One of the manifestations of the popularity of the right brain, left brain notion in popular culture, however, is the so-called Stroop effect. To demonstrate this effect, there are several psychological studies where the subjects are made to read words of colors, that are written in different colored ink. So, for example, you might have the word red written in blue ink, and you have to say, the subject has to say the, the color of the ink, blue, not the color of the word red. Therefore, you are being asked to suppress your ability to read the word red. This always causes a delay in response time, and that delay is called the Stroop effect. This is Stroop effect. No one can make the Stroop effect go away. If you can read the words, if you you can figure out how to like focus on a letter instead of the word, or do if you, if you cheat like doing it upside down and stuff, that doesn't count. But the, I, I think the person just read it at a slower rate. Yeah. Such yeah, but it's not. Yeah, but there's there's no documented way where you can make the Stroop effect go away. That you can you can only minimize it, but you can't. You can always the performance is delayed. If you so, if you, you have to do an internal comparison too. You have to do it with and without the word the words that you can read, and there's always a delay if you can read the words. That's the Stroop effect. Not that you can't do it quickly, but you can always do it quicker if you can't read the words. But anyway, the the, the pop explanation for that on all the websites is the right brain, left brain thing, but that's actually 100% wrong. It has absolutely nothing to do with right brain, left brain. It has to do with the hierarchy of, of you know, conscious attention versus subconscious you know, processing of language information. But that limited explanatory paradigm of right, left, that's what's out there in the popular culture, so that's what we read. Well, Steve, I'm of two minds about that. <laughs> Do you have time for one more? Yeah, uh, one more. Uh, yeah, okay. One more. Last question. Um, when you're talking about the differences between belief in the brain and fact, what about the relationship to those two language in the brain when you're looking at it? So what specific uh, effect are you talking about? Okay, you're saying there's differences in how the brain memorizes, looks at belief systems or facts. What about the, how do those relate to language? When you're oh, how does language relate to beliefs and facts? Yes. Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I, I have anything meaningful to say about that. I mean, all of our concepts are encoded in language, no matter what they are, whether they're factual or whatever. So I don't know that that really distinguishes. Yeah, but if, you, if it's related to that belief, in time, uh, language comes into a belief system that's going to affect how they see the world. Yeah, well, language definitely constrains the way we think of the world and explain the world. And when you actually learn a new word, sometimes 
you actually learn a new way of thinking. It actually adds to your ability to think about things. If, there's a new, if you're learning a new concept attached to that word, because words are sort of the hangers that we hang our concepts onto, which is why it's very helpful to try to expand your vocabulary and why a lot of sciences you have a lot of jargon. Sometimes, you know, pseudo-jargon is, is, I always have a fascination with this, where people use words that are not actually more dense or specific or unambiguous from a conceptual point of view, they just are bigger and fancier words, and they're just trying to impress you, as opposed to words that are jargony because they have a very precise and unambiguous or deeper meaning, or a meaning that is not fully captured by any other word in more common usage. And that's a very quick way, sometimes, to tell the difference between an intellectual and a poser, you know, somebody who like is using words to explain things better versus using words to obscure a concepts just to befuddle and impress you. But that's always something that I look out for very carefully. And and we are out of time. But thanks so much. The article writers always do with a quote, but before we do the quote, I want to just thank uh, Randy, Derek, and Pamela for being on the panel with us today. No problem. All right, so I'm going to play the role of Jay for this one, right? And in honor of the, uh, the fine woman sitting next to me, Pamela, and our friend Phil in the back. Here's the quote. Equipped with his five senses, man explores the universe around him and calls the adventure science. Edwin Hubble. <laughs> Edwin Hubble. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready? Yes. Yes. Ready to go. Okay. A new study demonstrates that some infants are infected with a herpes virus that was passed to them through the DNA of one of their parents. Item number two, new fossil evidence suggests that the ancestors of modern flightless birds never flew. And item number three, a new study shows that 27% of college students surveyed meet criteria for tanning addiction. Rebecca, go first. Well, first of all, I would like to take this moment to point out that my mouth hurts because I just came from the (laughs) dentist. And so I've also had a lot of drugs, you know, Uh and so I think that if I get this wrong, it's probably due to that. Special pleading. Go ahead. Moving on. Herpes virus being passed through the DNA of parents, that sounds viable to me. So I, I, I think that that's science. Fossil evidence suggesting that the ancestors of modern flightless birds never flew. That sounds fishy because that sounds like the sort of thing that's actually one of those slightly unexpected turns that evolution makes where a bird has flight and then loses it and... I, I think that that might be the fiction because um, tanning addiction, that's definitely something that sounds made up, but probably viable enough for a uh, generically titled new study. 
and um, college students are stupid, so they probably do tan a lot. So I'm going to say that number two, um, modern flightless birds never flew. Uh, That's fiction. Already? Bob? You mean the ancestors of modern flightless birds, I assume. Yes. I said that, you just Um, didn't hear it, because I said it very quietly. She's had drugs, and she's had stuff in her (laughs) mouth. Cocaine and other things. Oh, pain. All right, so the... You've got kids being born with a herpes virus that had been passed to them through the DNA of their parents. So that means that the virus is being somehow inter- getting absorbed into the DNA of the parents, which is interesting. But, um, yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, there, I mean, isn't there evidence of in the past of this happening? And that's a theory of how some of uh, some of the bits of our DNA um, got there in the first place. So the fact that herpes can do it is interesting. And I think there's... Uh, support for that. Um, the uh, 27% of college students' uh, tanning addiction, sure. I mean, even with all the news of how ultraviolet causes skin cancer and photoaging and all that, um, sure, 27% of college students addicted. I could still, I could see that. Uh, it's all, you know, short-term benefits. Let's see, the flightless birds, I think the common wisdom was was essentially that, that the 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 ancestors of modern flightless birds were also flightless. But I, I'm not buying that. I think uh, I'm going to say that one is fiction. Already, Evan? Well, just running through these quickly. Herpes virus. I've never known. Can viruses really pass through DNA? That's, that's fascinating. I mean, this will be something new that I've never heard before. And just fascinating enough that I think it should be cool. Therefore, I'll say that one's science. And then jumping to number three, a new study shows 20% of college students surveyed meet criteria for tanning addiction. Well, I don't know many college students who know want, who know how to make leather products or uh, the process of making leather products, but, uh, oh, wait, that's tanners. So- sorry. Yes, I should qualify that that's tanning their own skin. So that one's plausible. I'm surprised it's not more. Oh, Holly just Skyped me and wants to be my friend. How nice. <laughs> yes, and send, uh, send Holly your credit I'm sorry. card information. <laughs> and <laughs> Hi, Stephen Pinovella. This Holly. This Holly. This Holly. Uh, this Holly. She you a long time, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> that's like bad, bad English to give you a Woody. <laughs> anyway, you were saying... Oh, well, I was just about to agree with my colleagues that... The uh, flightless birds. That yeah, the fly. birds. Okay, you yes. agree. Are you ready? <laughs> All right, number one. A new study demonstrates that some infants are infected with a herpes virus that was passed to them through the DNA of one of their parents, and that is very cool science. Well, it's well, very that's inter- sad, that's an interesting that's vector. Fascinating. That's why I didn't say cool. Yeah, so viruses can insert themselves into host DNA. In fact, our DNA is filled with these viruses that have then mutated over time to the point where they're no longer viable. And these, in fact, these endogenous you know, viral bits of DNA, which clog up our own DNA, are one of the strongest lines of evidence for uh, common descent, right? Because we see the relationship between these, these you know, dead viruses and our DNA show a, a pretty clear evolutionary pattern. So, Steve, this is uh, an interesting vector. Has anyone thought of using herpes as a vector before for, for, I mean, for other reasons other than you know, giving you herpes? 
I don't know if it's been if it's been thought of as a as a vector for vi- for gene therapy. Right. Uh, retroviruses have been looked at. I don't know if specifically herpes virus, but this is the human herpes virus six or HHV six, and they have found uh, infants which had a congenital infection. Now, previously we have known about congenital infections, but you get them when the virus passes through the placenta into the bloodstream of the infant or the fetus at that point. Um, but this, they found that the children had the virus inserted into their DNA in the same place as one of their parents. So they figured that they must have gotten it from actually getting the, the, that chromosome from their parent that already had the virus in it. This is the first time this mode of transmission of a virus has been documented. Um, let's go on to number three. <laughs> a new study shows that 27% of college students surveyed meet criteria for tanning addiction... You know what they're calling tanning addiction, by the way? Um, Tanorexia. Tanorexia. That's right. (laughs) Awesome. Tanorexia. (laughs) And this is science. But that doesn't even make sense because if it was tanorexia, then they would be going without tanning because that's what anorexia is. Mm. It should be tanolemia. Oh, very nice. They go on binges of tanning and then they don't do it for a while. They binge and then, well, you can binge the vitamin C. But yeah. Tanaholism, but so the the researchers uh, recruited 400 students and other volunteers at the Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. So one of the weaknesses of the study is that it's all done at one university. So we don't know how much of a cross section uh, beyond that it is. This could be, you know, something about the culture of that university. Uh, but they found that 27 percent of those surveyed self reported features that met criteria for tanning addiction, including. Um, thinking that they need to spend more and more and more time tanning in order to maintain their tan, so increasing the behavior, continuing to tan so that their tan would not fade, and not being dissuaded from tanning by the knowledge that it can increase their risk of skin cancer, so the, the negative health consequences not being a deterrent to increased tanning. They also found a very high correlation with uh, being very skinny, which is, again, why they use the term tanorexia. Uh and also a high incidence of cigarette smoking. So it makes you wonder if there is a, uh, either a behavior pattern or a personality type that goes along with this. Or th- This opens the door to ask that question, why are these things going together, and you know, what is the common thread? Which means that you guys are all correct. New fossil evidence suggests that the ancestors of modern flightless birds never flew is fiction. Yay. The new evidence shows that Modern flightless birds like the kiwi. ostrich in uh, Africa, the kiwi in Australia, and the emu in South America all have different ancestors that flew. And they lost their flight independently. There was never really any serious consideration to the, to the notion that, that flightless bird-like dinosaurs evolved straight to modern flightless birds without ever passing through ancestors that actually flew. It's not impossible. It's just that the fossil evidence does not support that notion. That rather, that flightless birds all have, a, have ancestors who could fly, and then they secondarily became flightless. But the question was, did there, was there one flightless ancestor that then gave, split off into the, the, the kiwi, the emu, and the ostrich, or did flightlessness evolve from ancestors who could fly occur independently multiple times? And this new fossil evidence suggests that that's the case, that, this, that it arose independently in each of the, the modern flightless birds. They do not share a common flightless ancestor. 
Fascinating. We win. Yeah. Beat you at your own game, didn't we, Novella? That's you right. did. You guys all got it this this time. Well, f- thank you for joining me this week, guys. Thanks. Thank oh yeah. Thanks. I nothing else time. to do. Thanks for another great trip. Good to have trip. you back in New England. Yeah. It it is good to be back. All although I did have a lot of fun at Dragon Con. Yeah, it was fun. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Yeah.